What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to sing it. My name is Jared, and I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. Today, we got Helen. Welcome back, Helen. Hello, hello, hello. And Austin. Yo. So today, (laughs) we're talking about Black Mirror Season 5, Episode 1, Striking Vipers, starring Anthony Mackie, and another name about to fuck up, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Maybe that was right. That's actually pretty Written clear. By... I think it's good. Oh, well, what is it actually? Do you know what it actually is? I think or you're just it. guessing? Uh, oh, okay, great. Written by Charlie Brooker and directed by Owen Harris. As always, uh, let's go around. This is actually the only episode of season five that I've watched yet. I'm a little bit behind. You guys tell me what you thought about this episode. Tell me what you thought about season five as a whole if you have watched the whole thing. Let's start with Helen. Helen, what do you think? So I have watched... Almost all of season five. I'm actually on the very tail end of um, the one with the social media guy. Won't give it smithereens. To smithereens. Yes. So um, my thoughts on season five. I thought it was very a bit more uplifting, perhaps, than some of the other scenes. And I haven't seen a ton of Black Mirror. I've seen some episodes here and there, but you know, the ends of them typically left me kind of dis. You know, a little bit not despondent for the state of humanity, but you know, kind of kind of downtrodden a little bit. Mm. So, but I thought that this was a bit gentler, shall we say? I don't, and I won't say. You know, we're not going to get too deep into the other two episodes here because obviously you haven't seen them. You know, they seemed a little bit more plot driven, I guess, than maybe I expected. But they overall for striking vipers thought it was okay. You know, I mean. The implications for VR and relationships have been kind of, you know, discussed to death. To see them laid out in this format was interesting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, my thoughts aren't terribly sophisticated. But, yeah, that's where I'm at. So you thought it was all right? thought it was okay. Give it a B. Okay. B. Austin, what do you think? Yeah, overall, the season, it seems like maybe Brooker is recycling a little too much material. You know, um, he's repeating a lot of similar themes. and And I get that. But... I agree. I think somewhere in the B range, B to B minus, I think, for the overall series. I just finished watching the the third one last night. I didn't actually hate the third one. I know everyone hated the one with Miley Cyrus. I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike it. I thought it was decent. I thought the first half of the episode was really good. The latter half kind of sucks. The second episode, Smithereens, uh, I think the plot is pretty bland. I think Topher Grace is kind of fun in it. He plays basically the Mark Zuckerberg character. Um, But I think the way that they try to justify a a big platform is kind of cheesy. I don't want to give the plot away, so I won't say that. But they kind of provide cover for some of the problems that it causes in a kind of cheesy way. But I will say this. Andrew Scott is fucking brilliant. He plays Moriarty in Sherlock for people who are curious. His performance is literally BAFTA and Emmy worthy. Um, But then, of course, the episode that we're going to talk about, Striking Vipers, I think is the strongest one of the season. But again, I still think it was kind of a retread of some of the themes from the much more interesting, much better executed, uh, and I think much richer San Junipero. So I think he was Mm. trying to ride the wave of the success from that because that one did win all the awards and that one did get critical and I think audience praise just across the board. And I think he was trying to kind of seize the cultural moment and address similar themes but from a different angle, this time talking about uh, sort of black queer identity. And I think that the effort is something to laud, but I think the execution was, eh, it was okay. So it was a 
If we're going to stick with the B metaphor thing, then we'll give it a B plus for the first episode, yeah. even though the total season, like B minus. It's funny that you say that it was retreading some of the territory from before. I hadn't really thought about San Junipero. I haven't. San Junipero was the first episode of that season that I watched. I watched them out of order. And I actually kind of, I didn't forget about the episode, but I forgot about it when watching this one. Mm. But I felt like this episode was actually trying to evade some of, it almost seems like it was baiting you with thinking, oh, okay, two guys in a virtual reality world. The virtual reality thing even looks very similar to Hang the, the DJ? virtual reality. I'm sorry? Because it's the Hang the DJ one, too, that it kind of reminded right. me of. Yeah. Right, yeah. And then I felt like it took a pretty strong left turn when they started making out, and that at least, <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it it surprised me. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually quite pleased with this episode. I Perhaps I had, the reason why we're doing this one is because I had heard similar to what Austin is saying is that the episodes probably get worse as they go along this mm-hmm. season. And so I figured, all right, well, if we're going to talk Black Mirror, we probably don't have the time to analyze all three of them in one yeah. podcast. So let's go with the best one. Mm-hmm. And I quite liked this one. Mm-hmm. I haven't rewatched a lot of the Black Mirror episodes recently. So Black Mirror was relatively absent in my mind. So when I watched this, it was relatively fresh and mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. And I also thought that so you bring up the black queer identity thing, and I've seen a lot of criticisms leveled at this episode because it didn't tackle things about perhaps black queer identity or gender as much as some critics perhaps wanted them to. Because I kind of came away with a – I wouldn't say a totally different message, but a different message. And mm. I felt like that was another way that this episode was trying to evade predictability because once – you know, once he puts a VR thing on his head, it's you think, okay, it's going to be something about how we're all going to be on this max mass exodus to a virtual world. It's going to be something like that. And then, nope, it's about sexuality. And then as soon as it's about sexuality and we see one of the people switching genders, you think it's going to be about gender identity. Nope, it's not really. And it's not really about homosexuality in a literal sense because they end up deciding that they don't have any romantic spark between their in real life. So... That was also something that I thought was kind of clever. So I overall dug it. Interesting. Yeah. This is – this. I didn't say it, but this is actually where – and we can get into it after you give the recap. But I actually find the episode to be quite insufficient, maybe inadequate, and maybe even, if I can bust out my term, a little problematic. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, you know, it's been too long since I've heard you say that, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I really do with the way that they've handled this um, – so, you know, we get into the recap and then yeah. we can start going through your notes and stuff like that. But I can explain what I mean later. How yeah. did you know I made notes? Kidding. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's go into a recap. So best bro friends, Danny and Carl, spend their nights either at the club or playing video games together. Fast forward 11 years and Danny is married to his longtime girlfriend, Theo, and hasn't seen Carl in years. Carl shows up unannounced to his 38th birthday party and gives Danny the new TCKR virtual reality system along with the newest installation of their favorite fighting game series, Striking Vipers. They catch up and Danny mentions how him and Theo are looking to have another kid while Carl is still serially dating younger women. When Danny plays his first game of Striking Vipers in VR, he's amazed that he's able to inhabit the body of his favorite character Lance and Carl his favorite character Roxette. After exchanging blows for a little bit like back in the day, they find themselves overcome with a new feeling and start to make out. Scared of the implications, they immediately quit the game. 
but they can't stay away for long. During their next play session, they immediately start hooking up as Carl and Roxette, and it becomes a recurring affair. Theo becomes upset when Danny no longer shows interest in having sex with her, and Carl can no longer maintain interest in the young girls he dates. Danny ends their digital rendezvous, and a year passes. Theo, now pregnant, invites Carl over for dinner without telling Danny. At dinner, Carl convinces Danny to meet him in the game that night, but after they have digital sex, Danny tells Carl to meet him in real life because he has to know if there's a real romantic connection between them. They meet in an alley and kiss, but there's nothing, no romantic connection. They fight, and when the cops show up, Theo has to pick Danny up from jail. Danny fesses up to Theo, and they agree that one night a year, she gets to have sex with another person, and he gets to have digital avatar-mediated sex with Carl. End of episode. All right, guys, before we go on, I want to give a shout-out to our sponsors over at Twillery. So if you listen to the podcast, I've talked about Twillery before. They're a great friend of the podcast. Twillery is dress shirts. So every day, you need a shirt, almost every day. Shopping for shirts should be as simple as shopping for milk. You need it. Twillery shirts are comfortable, easy to care for, look great, and fit perfectly. Basically, all of the dress shirts that I now own that fit me are Twillery shirts, and I really like them because they breathe and they don't sweat. Most performance shirts are polyester and feel a little bit plasticky, but Twilleries are mostly cotton with an incredible hand feel. So there's no annoying scratchy tags. It's easy to care for and wrinkle-free. Also, you pay 55 bucks for a shirt here, which a competitor would sell for over 100 When listeners use the code SHOWME at checkout, they will get $25 off their purchase. Just go to twillery.com slash showme and enter the promo code SHOWME at checkout. Once again, that's use the promo code SHOWME at twillery.com slash showme for $25 off their purchase. That is promo code SHOWME at twillery.com slash showme. And now back to the show. All right, so let's just dive in and say, I want to ask you guys, to you, what is this episode about? So we heard a little bit, uh, well, actually, we heard a little bit from both of you, but I want to hear a little bit more in depth about what you kind of took away from this episode or what it made you think about. I think all Black Mirror episodes point to some sort of sociologically, technologically mediated pending disaster or just some sort of issue. So what was it for you, Helen? Well, I mean, I thought it was pretty clearly about the implications of being able to step out of reality in the way that you can with VR on, you know, everyday relationships, right? Mm -hmm. The guys, you know, are kind of insisting to themselves and, uh, you know, to each other that this doesn't matter. This isn't real, you know, and and it very clearly is, as you point, you know, Theo and and Danny's relationship kind of uh, is just falling apart a little bit. And, you know, Carl is, despite being a playboy, is, you know, can't focus anymore on sex with the younger girls. Like, whoa, what is this crazy? So <laughs> it's just, I mean, but I think, too, you know, it's it's also about the implications for VR on our relationships with ourselves. Because I think in our relationships with other people, we have, you know, one version of of ourselves and then we have kind of... sometimes that disconnects us for the person that we see ourselves as, especially when you're in a relationship for a long time. And VR gives you the opportunity to reconnect with a different type of self. I mean, a lot of this felt to me like an escape, you know, especially for Danny, who is, he's hitting that midlife, maybe not midlife crisis, but that point where he's like, God, I'm bored, you know, and Theo says, I'm bored. And this is a way for him to really 
get out of that. And in in this in in striking vipers, you know, it's it's one type of self, but theoretically for VR as a whole, you have I mean, potentially, you know, whatever game creators come up with, you could be infinite, you know, possibilities for selves. And I think that's sort of some of the, the themes there, like identity, you know, and, and kind of human relationships. And then the interplay between the two when you have the option of stepping out of that. Yeah. So, so I think what you landed on is something very similar to what I landed on. Have you guys ever been reading something and then you watch something and there's this serendipity of why, wow, this is actually speaking a lot to what I just read. Mm -hmm. And that happened to me because I was reading some stuff about uh, VR studies and specifically how people relate to their avatars, how people's perception of themselves changes based on the avatar that they're using. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff written about that, which I'll get into a little bit later. But first, I want to hear uh, what Austin took away from this. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think I agree with everything that Helen said. And I think that from, um, let's say, a cultural and social perspective, I think maybe one of the other things that Brooker is exploring, or at least that this episode explores, is the the issue of homosociality and of mm. homoeroticism. And so- What is homosociality? You know, really, what's up? What is that first term, homosociality? What does that mean? Just- um, how men or how women or um, how something similar, I guess we would say, you know, homo means same, um, mm -hmm. identifies within a social landscape. And so let's say, let's mm -hmm. particularly this episode is dealing with male, male, man, man relationships, right? And not just man, man relationships, but black man relationships, which come loaded with very particular and specific sets of meanings. One of which is that dudes relate through sports. And that black dudes relate in particular through sports, right? So when they're sitting on the sofa in the opening scenes and they're playing the video game, you can kind of translate that into dudes sitting on a sofa watching the Lakers play and getting excited about Anthony Davis being traded to the Lakers. Woot woot, everybody in the house, by the way, um, and get really excited about that, right? And there are a lot of cultural critics who examine that there's like a latent homoeroticism in that homosocial relationship, right? And the question is, is is Brooker, I think, kind of just throwing a grenade into that and saying, well, it's not only that sports can be unpacked as viewing kind of uh, having this this latent homo uh, eroticism, but that actually video games too, that there's like this libidinal impulse that is invested into the things that we engage in and that maybe we sublimate that. We kind of infuse it into things that are a little bit more socially acceptable. Right. And so you infuse it into sports so that you can high five each other and hug each other because you can't high five each other and hug each other and say, I love you and and like touch each other's shoulders. And when you're just at the cafe, because afraid that people are going to be like, whoa, dude, what are you gay? Why are you touching each other so much? But in sports, that's allowed. It's encouraged. You're supposed to do that. Right. And it's actually touching and it's powerful and it's a good thing. It's human beings touching each other. It's not necessarily that you want to have a sexual encounter with this person. But then again, it could be that. You know, maybe there is a sense in which you're sublimating these deeper libidinal desires. And I think that ex it explores that kind of dynamic, but now through uh, video games, which is something that is much becoming maybe much more prominent in our society than it had been, you know, over the last few hundred years where sports was kind of the dominant way that dudes related to each other. And I'm not saying that women aren't involved in this. That's an interesting dynamic that needs to get considered. And I think you kind of get that with the wife. But I think it obviously this episode is just trying to explore just simply one slice of that larger pie. And so I thought that was something that was really interesting as well. The question is, yeah. is 
does he explore that in a way that we think is sufficient? Does it really deal with that in a kind of robust analysis or does it kind of fall short in that there are maybe some things that he really missed out on or maybe that he even kind of suppressed because he was still too wedded to certain um, certain social presuppositions? All right. Well, you got me hooked. So now I want to hear more about this. Let's get to the mm-hmm. problematic aspect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So – this is how I this is how my 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 grand interpretation. So I'll just rush to the end. I think the grand interpretation is is that Brooker falls short because he basically says that there's a true self, which is like your inner desire, and then there's like your skin or your phys- physical or biophysical self, right? And you said, Jared, that you thought that when they kiss in real life that they didn't feel anything. I thought that the looking the look on their face was really quite forlorn. And that they actually mm. did yes. want it, but they couldn't allow themselves in the real life. That they lied to themselves. And that yeah, they, I concur with that. Sorry, you you thought that that's too, what, Helen? That's what you Thank thought, you. Helen? Yeah, I did. I actually, well, I got that moment with, with Danny. I mean, you know, Carl pulls, uh, yeah, Carl pulls back and he's like, nope. And Danny, there's a beat, you know? Mm. And and the look in his eyes. As an, I just thought that was. I mm. guess I took the script pretty literally. Right. I mean, because then what's the next thing that happens? They fight each other. Right. So exactly. it's like, it's like, no, bro, I'm not gay. Fuck you. I'm going to be, fuck you. Don't know. That was, it was almost too real. It was like they actually got in touch with the true impulse and their true desire. But because society and maybe even to add another layer, because a black masculinity wouldn't allow them to embrace that, they had to suppress it and they had to resort to anger or violence or to something. But here's the weird thing. I don't necessarily think it was a fight out of hatred. It was more a fight out of love in a weird way, right? That that they didn't know how to deal with these kind of feelings because society, because their own uh, adjustment within that societal framework hasn't allowed them to adjust to those impulses. And so here's the problem is that the game then provides the cover. The game then says, well, here's where you can go and you can truly be you. And so it creates a dualism. It says there's like the real you on the inside and then there's like the kind of facade that you wear on the outside. And it just maintains that, which is kind of an interesting framework. It's an interesting contradiction, but it kind of then doesn't really deal with that. The only way that it resolves it at the end is through like a contract. And I think that that's kind of a weak way out. It's kind of saying you don't have – society will never actually allow you to truly address that except through a legal framework. And that's the contract that he makes with his wife, right? And I I think that to me is just kind of a weak liberal way out. You know, like there are two streams of politics really. There's like the Hobbesian social contract, liberal approach. And that's kind of what this film takes. And then there's the much more interesting transformative. Like how is society constructed? How are the norms constructed in the first place? How are our identities constructed? And then we even know, and Helen can speak to this more, but that VR will actually change our psychobiological flows in our brains, you know? And so it would have been much more interesting if it explored that latter element of social formation, I thought. All right, you go, you go first, Helen. Well, I actually just wanted to ask... Austin, because now I'm curious, like, because I actually thought the resolution was, if nothing else, very realistic. This is the reality of the kinds of, you know, the outcome of dealing with the kinds of social constructs that you talk about. Basically, they agree, you know, one night a year, we're going to have an open relationship. You get to do your, you know, homoerotic thing. I get to go out and, you know, be a young hot thing or a young single thing again, I guess. (laughs) Hot hot single thing. I don't know. Whatever. And and, you know. 
they it, it essentially seems like almost an uplifting ending. No, we don't resolve the points about that you made about, you know, the I guess the the way that the world doesn't allow you to have that kind of identity. But I mean, I, I thought it was realistic, if nothing else. And I was curious as to what you thought might have been a better ending for that. But I mean, you know, or what would have been a, a way to tackle that? Yeah. Well, here's where there, I thought there was another real limitation. The only way that these two men can actually engage in their sexual encounter is through a heteronormative relationship, right? True. So they can't even engage as themselves, so to speak. It's only their true inner self, which is the homoerotic impulse, that then is prismed through a heteronormative external shell. And not only that, but they kind of fetishize uh, online gaming characters too, which I thought was interesting. You know, there's like the sexy Chun-Li character, and then there's like the, the sexy Ryu character. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's a real that's thing. That's normal. I was about to say, that doesn't <laughs> seem like any, you know. That's I, I, not... I don't think there's any exaggeration there. No. no, no, there's no exaggeration. And that's what I, another thing that I thought would have been interesting to explore. But there's that bit where they have sex. And, you know, uh, the 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 Lance character turns to Roxette and is like, well, what's it like? And the Roxette is like, oh, my God, it's so amazing. It feels so different as a woman. I thought what would have been a more interesting way of ex- of exploring this is if both of them explored all the different characters. And then not only do they explore all the different characters and all the different potential ways that you can explore this erotic impulse, but then if also maybe maybe the wife gets involved in this somehow. And then maybe uh, what was the what's the, is it Kyle? Is that the other the friend? Carl. 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 And maybe yeah. he like and, and brings in some of his uh, friends in there. Maybe maybe other maybe it's women. Maybe it's men. And then that's what they experiment with. And maybe they end up still saying no. I don't want that. I still want you. But that nevertheless. I want you not just simply through this heteronormative avatar framework, but rather I want you for you, whatever that means, right? And then exploring that contradiction. It doesn't have to be just uh, us in our uh, Roxette and Lance framework. I thought that would have been a much more kind of interesting. And then the wife, like what, what's her thing? Because she's just simply excluded from the thing that like is a man's world, right? And now she's allowed to have her own fun. And I thought that was interesting. But how long is that going to last? I mean, she's gorgeous now but yeah. when she's 50 are they're still going to be able to be youthful and have these amazing freaking bodies is she still going to be able to go out and and get a satisfying maybe there are a lot of you know decent looking you know kind of like if it's just about the fleeting passions dudes that she can hook up with um or maybe she ends up hooking up with women later in her life but what about when she's 70 what about when she's 80 and the body starts to fade when she gets tired maybe maybe her physical impulse post menopause for sex is is going to shift i mean who knows what's going to happen but them they're always going to have their VR world, right? And I just thought that that was a little limiting. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So a couple things. One, so I'm going to try to respond to what you just said. So in terms of the VR thing being limiting, in my opinion, I don't think that you're putting enough emphasis on the fact that they are playing video games together. So, you know, a lot of, if you play a video game with somebody over a course of years, when you play a video game, oftentimes you're always the red team and he's always the blue team. You know, there's like a, a tradition, a set standard. And especially in a sexual act, there is an essence of like familiarity, of rhythm to it. And I think it's important that he's playing, you know, even in the in it, Carl at one point says, he's like, you know, I tried to do it with other people. I tried mm-hmm. to do it with this Dutch guy, but it just didn't really work out. <laughs> but because and a polar bear. you and I have played... And a polar bear, yeah. <laughs> Don't forget the polar bear. Yeah. <laughs> but because <laughs> you and I have played video games together and we have we have this rhythm, this understanding, there is this real 
uh, over the course of years, we've developed this ability to play together. And I think that it's interesting to think that that kind of, I, I don't know what you would call it, like you're just, when people getting better at a video game together can be equated to people getting better at sex together. Yeah. And I think, and and so I think that's also thing. So one thing about, let me go back to when you talked about your interpretation of when Anthony Mackie gets kissed and he has this sense of forlornness to it. Now, I'm not going to argue that that's an invalid reading. I think it's a very valid reading. But I will say that if I were to point to a piece of evidence that suggests that my reading is more accurate, it's simply that the end of the episode is tonally supposed to be a happy ending. You know, we're supposed to believe that it, it wouldn't be a happy ending if Anthony Mackie still had this desire that was unfulfilled that no I really want to be with Carl in real life but now I can only really get the digital version but I think we're meant to believe that that's all that he really wanted and that this is like I mean maybe he'd like to have it more often maybe he's just fine with having it once a year to kind of purge that of himself but I at least for the purposes of this discussion I'm going to assume and we can disagree but I'm going to assume that they actually did not have that spark in real life and I think that you're also it's not divided between real and unreal in the sense of in the game, that's like their real desire. And then in actual life, that is some sort of like fake desire or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. In some of the reading that I've been doing about how people interact with avatars. And so, for example, I, I was reading this one paper about interactive sex simu simulators, which we'll get into in a little bit. And it's this phenomenological and and physiological study of how people are able to be turned on by these simulators they actually suggest it's more of like a braiding between the real and the unreal like if you imagine your hair being braided so we could talk a little bit more about that mm. but um let's dive into unless you guys wanted to talk about something unless you wanted to respond to that i wanted to get into some of the stuff that i've been reading about about avatars and how people relate to their avatars yeah, I mean, I was going to say, Helen, what do you think um, about all those, the, the debate, if you're the, the mediator between the two of us, where do you come down on this? I mean, in terms of what, like the division between whether, uh, what what part, there's a lot that you guys unpacked. Yeah, I think like it was the ending maybe. and Is um, Anthony Mackie, yeah. is he satisfied at the end or not? I didn't feel like we, I, I don't think, think there's a, there's I didn't an think answer. They gave it, yeah, I don't think that we had enough evidence to know either way. I think it seemed like that arrangement worked out for them and they seemed like okay with it. He didn't seem terribly excited when they were doing the exchange of the, you know, the the card and the the ring box there at the end or whatever it was that, yeah, I think that was what was happening. They, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think the show gave us a, a precise, you know, neat little box to tell us where, yeah. how, the, yeah. All I can really do is point to evidence to what I think backs up my argument, but I'm not saying that it's definitive. I, yeah. And yeah. I don't, and I kind of agree with you though, that I don't think that they're, it's, it's so much like this is their real desire versus their fake desire. I, I am on, agree with you on that, Jared. I think like that VR gives, I, I think it's equal. I don't think, I think that they are there. That's just kind of the fluidity of identity that we kind of explore and, you know, and the VR allows us to explore the being able to and and other forms of, you know, just things like God, the Sims, I don't know, like all kinds of stuff where you can be a different character, just, you know, where you can create a different life for yourself yeah. and be something different. That's that's, you know, that doesn't mean that your desires in real life are not real. Yeah. 
I think like Austin's saying, they can be definitely, they're obviously dictated by, you know, social norms and things like that, that maybe in alternative, you know, for the lack of virtual right now, universes that, you know, are enabled by virtual reality, like you don't have those kinds of restraints and therefore you can be whatever you want within the limitations hmm. of the game. You know what I'm saying? And there's just yeah. so many possibilities. I mean, that's, you know, in any single video game, that's not how it's going to work. You know, I think the yeah. rap did a whole thing on how like this would never work out because like software can't, you know, it's too hard to be able to do this. And then, you know, just the fact that it's like you can't have, you know, a, a game where you go from being able to fight to then it's like, ooh, there's this like secret explicit sex mode. Like that would be pulled off the shelves. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that happened with with Grand Theft Auto at some point, didn't oh, there? There was Grand a whole Theft thing. Grand Theft Auto 3 had the, the hot coffee. The hot coffee, exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, there are definitely like little holes there but when you suspend your disbelief i still think it's a lot about identity and and it's not necessarily that one is real and the other isn't it's just that kind of like with sexuality there can be a certain fluidity yeah it's definitely you, so, not like real versus fake so I, I definitely didn't mean to communicate that i think you're absolutely no. right and i would take this in like the freudian or post-freudian psychoanalytic sense and what i mean is is we can say that there are always like three layers there's the layer of the true event Right, the layer of the true inscription or the marking, uh, then what that does is it marks and it records the second layer in your unconscious, which is this preserved memory that's always there. And then there's the third and always tendential misrecognition or misinterpretation of the inscripted recording that is recorded on the unconscious. And how that translates is that that means that uh, let's say, for example, with regards to dreams or memories, let's say memories are better, you never actually encounter your memory, but you in, you relate to the memory as you interpret it or fabulate it or fabricate it now when you're pondering the memory. And I think we could translate that into something similar here. So if you take the sort of like the three levels, if you have like the level of the inscription, the level of the unconscious, and then the misrecognition, I think the way that that maps onto kind of what's going on here with, with kind of like living through your avatar uh, is that you kind of have like the real impulse that is being explored in the video game. But Rather than uh, that being real versus your external world being fake, it's that the social world is always like a misrecognition of these other things that are always swirling around. And they don't – they're not completely separate in, in real terms. But I think that my, my concern or maybe the, the thing that I would criticize this episode for is that uh, it kind of views them as being separate. It kind of views them as being like these two worlds – cannot coexist, right? You can have the world where you're allowed to indulge in your true libidinal desires. And then there's the world in which there's the social world. And the problem is, is rather than actually working through them and adjusting to that contradiction, you just slap a contract on it, which means that you basically just create this like formal empty category that you allow people to relate through, which is one of the problems with like the claim of of like contracts or rights being these like neutral arbitrators of, of things, right? Because they're not really okay. But they they have so you know what I mean? Yeah, but I feel like you just did it again, where you said that in the video game you get your true libidinal desires, which I think I would argue that when you identify as an avatar in some in some situations, you actually have new libidinal desires. That I don't think that like the idea of the self as having is that concrete. I think that when you are inhabiting an avatar, you do in a sense become somebody else. So Anthony Mackie... And in, in, you mean in real life, like when, when you and I play? Um, or do you think that, th that... My point is I think you're right. My point is I don't think 
the 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 show i don't think striking vipers adequately shows that complexity it kind of it tries to separate well yeah them. i think that's i think that's concern. what it's gesturing towards to the fact that they don't actually uh-huh. have a real life homosexual relationship they only are able to be attracted to each other when he is whatever character is based on ken from street fighter and he is chung lee basically i mean th- yeah. th- that's that's how i would say that it actually does communicate that mm, okay yeah I, I mean i guess i could see that i guess i just you know i would have preferred maybe a little more nuance or something <laughs> you know fair sure fair enough all right let me blow through some of this yeah. stuff so i read this study called object me symbiote and other a Social Typology of Player-Avatar Relationships by Jamie Banks. So this researcher, Jamie Banks, claims that there are four different ways in which people relate to avatars. So this would be like if I'm playing World of Warcraft, my character is my avatar, or if I'm playing Street Fighter, Ryu is my avatar. So the first one is avatar as object. So in this sense, it's the avatar acts as a tool. I Basically, I'm using the avatar as a tool to do something. So the connections are generally detached and they're strategic. And basically players are just doing this basically just to get something done. And there's a lot of distance between the identification of myself and the identification with the avatar. The second one is avatar as me. Basically, I see the avatar as a representation of myself. Um, This is both in terms of identity and through agency. The third one is... And this is apparently the most common one. This is Avatar as Symbiote, in which the Avatar is intertwined with the player. So think of it as like a mask or a costume, but the player does not merely wear the Avatar as a mask or a costume. Rather, both the player and the Avatar engage in a cooperative process of becoming more alike, usually toward an ideal self. Mm. So in other words... The player uses the avatar to craft an ideal or alternate persona. Sober, brave, strong, happy, social, independent. And he uses the avatar to practice being that persona. So through this lens, I can kind of see what you're saying, that if there is some sort of dormant desire hidden inside of Anthony Mackie's character or the other character, and that the inhabiting the avatar allows them to express it, then I can kind of see what you're saying there. Yeah, I mean, it's not just dormant either, because it does get expressed when they were playing video games when they were younger dudes. Oh, when they were like, sofa, what, right? like play fucking or yeah, whatever. Yeah, right, he jumps on him, yeah. kind of, yeah, sure. Yeah, and they're like touching each other and stuff. I mean, they, that's what I meant by like the homosociality and the homoeroticism. They, it's just like the sports thing, like you're allowed to touch each other and you're allowed to make the sex sounds like you're talking about and you're allowed to do that in this safe space, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of like that that symbiotic thing but then in the world of virtual reality it gets fractured and that's where the anxiety comes from he's not allowed to have his bro anymore he doesn't have that release of that that homoerotic need and i don't mean homoerotic in the sense that he's he's gay as an identity right that that makes it something static it makes it something that is far less complex and i know that's the way that a lot of times certain cultures like to view it but i think that that's a real misreading of the the much more complex interwoven you talked about that braided sense of impulse as it connects with like the superego or like the social pressures and things like that if i can just tell a short college anecdote that what you just said made me think of back back when i was in college it wasn't street fighter wasn't mortal Kombat, it was super smash brothers and (laughs) me and my bros were really into it and i had this one friend jacob knows him i don't know if jacob's not in the booth but he was the kind of guy he was just so good looking and women just threw themselves at him 
And it would be, this would happen maybe once a week. We'd be up late playing Super Smash Brothers, probably high. And girls would just text him saying, please come over, you know? And he was just like, nah, playing Super Smash Brothers with my bros. (laughs) (laughs) And if there, I don't know, there has to be some sort of libidinal, to use Austin's word, fulfillment going on for him to turn that down. (laughs) To to turn that down to just play Super Smash Brothers and smoke weed with his bros. Of course, man. We, we're, we're so fixated that it has to be either gay or straight rather than recognizing that libidinal energy flows into all kinds of things that we do, right? Like this is one of the things that philosophy teaches us is that eros, you know, the dart that is shot from Cupid's bow that instigates this like desire that you just have to have this other person or that you need this other thing. I mean that that impulse, that erotic impulse is like a spark to life. It doesn't mean I want to take my genitals and your genitals and rub them together in whatever fucking way. I mean that's that's one expression of it. That's like a sort of post post teen uh post development of sex organs and certain hormones injected through the body expression but that's not the only way that libidinal impulse is manifest mm-hmm. yeah uh, all right the last one just to finish this up is avatar as other relationships so this is when the avatar is a distinct social agent with its own governing systems its own life history its own trajectory and it's embodied as a completely independent existence within the game world Interestingly, this is actually the rarest one in terms of uh, players who play video games. It's the rarest that they'll actually see their avatar as someone completely independent of themselves. Okay, so it's a complete cutoff. This is this person in this game and this is me. Interesting. Okay, gotcha. So there's actually been a lot. I read a couple of studies. There's this guy who wrote a book called Infinite Reality. His name is Jim Blaskovich. He's a UC Santa Barbara professor who does a lot of work in virtual reality uh, I read as much as Google Books would allow me to read because I did not have a copy on hand, but it actually seems like a, a book that's a pretty smooth read. So if you guys are interested in this kind of stuff, I really recommend that book, Infinite Reality by Jim Blaskovich. But he, his, one of the things in Avatars, he says that Avatars can help people discover aspects of themselves that they never knew existed. People might develop greater empathy for the opposite sex, or in a virtual world, girls can be boys and boys can be girls. And he also talks about a researcher named Yi who designed a study. I didn't get the first name because Google Books didn't give it to me. He designed a study in which unattractive people inhabited an attractive avatar and found that in the virtual world, they've got physically more close to people, divulged more personal information, and sought out more attractive partners. But the interesting thing is that this actually affected them after they left the virtual world. Their self-esteem boost persisted outside the digital world. Uh, He also found Mm. that they were less likely to exaggerate things like their height after inhabiting a virtual avatar. So it is interesting how we look to these virtual avatars to incorporate a part of ourselves. It's not that, oh, I get to inhabit this other self for a brief moment. It's that I inhabit that self and then use it to construct myself or have this kind of symbiotic relationship between the two. And I guess that's kind of how I was more reading the episode. Hmm. There's also another study that he talks about where uh, a tall person and a short person will get into a VR simulator and 
the so let's say that hmm. uh, I guess the study they they were working off a foundational a foundation of a study that was if a short person and a tall person have to split up a hundred dollars the tall person will probably end up walking away with more money because I guess they're more intimidating and then if you put them in a virtual hmm. reality simulator and the short person has the tall avatar but the tall person has the short avatar then the person with the tall avatar will get the more money. But then interestingly, then after they get out of the, get out of the simulation, the real-life short person who had the tall avatar still gets more money. Interesting. It's like that confidence carries over right. into real life. Right. I'd be so interested to see a longitudinal study hmm. on that. Like, how long does this last? Right. And, and, you know, yeah. one, too, that, like, I'd, and I'm not, incredibly familiar or even like a little bit familiar really in the grand scheme of things as, as to how VR impacts the brain. I know there's like implications for, you know, empathy and things like that. And, but I would be interested to see, you know, do we see that reflected, right? Like in the, that, that up, that boost, that kind of, like you're saying, you know, altered identity a little bit, like yeah. it's, it's shifted the way that you see yourself. And that's, that's really fascinating that you actually see implications for that in the real world. All right, so um, I just want to briefly touch on the porn thing. So as I mentioned earlier, I read this article called Towards a Theory of Virtual Pornography, a phenomenal Phenomenological, there's a lot of N's and M's in that word, <laughs> Introduction to Interactive Sex Simulators and the Naive Realist Paradigm. So in this, someone named Kevin Winter explores these things called interactive sex simulators, which, interestingly, in their most archaic form, go back as early as 1979. <laughs> with video installations by Lynn Hirschman. Uh, but in this article, Winter talks about how the mind and body interact with these sex simulators and how they're able to give the sensation of pleasure. So I have all these really long quotes written out, but I'm going to try and keep this short since we're going a little long already. But he cites a scholar named Charles Tart who wrote in a book called State of Consciousness that you have a you've learned to perceive your body in a learned pattern way just as you've learned to perceive the external world in socially learned ways so along with the body's consciousness of internal corporeal input tart proposes a symbolic dimension to introspective reality independent of actually occurring stimuli so the way he describes this is Think of um, a phantom the phantom limb phenomenon. So when an arm or leg is amputated, the patient almost always reports that he can still feel the limb, even though he can see and otherwise intellectually know that it's not there. So in the same regard, these sex simulators give way to the participant's scent of pleasure, basically with it's instead of the limb, it's like the penis. So the subject is willing to surrender his intellectual acumen in knowing that it's not there, but it doesn't stop him from feeling the pleasures performed in the avatar's body. So it would be not amiss to suggest that the particular body image allows him to refer to the sex acts performed on his avatar to his own body. Basically, it's not a matter of the participant believing that he has literally crossed over into the virtual space and is in direct contact with the fake woman, it's more that the interactive sensation, it's, it lies elsewhere. It's like a vague intuitive zone that can be located in the register of the imagination. It's not the, so the pleasure that you get from a sex simulator draws its affect not from the tangible intellectual belief that I know that I'm getting pleasure from a woman or I believe that, but from a suspended disbelief sustained in the imaginary where incongruencies in perception and pleasure sensibly coalesce. And this is where I'm getting the kind of, it's a braiding of fantasy and reality. 
reading this article, I, what I took away is as if the mind is very sophisticated in arranging the body and mind in such a way to make sure that you experience this, this pleasure in the fullest. Uh, it's like your higher order active consciousness negotiates its body image in the wake of selective suspensions of actuality and the phantasmic supports that procure illusions of visceral sexual activity. All right, I'm done quoting things written by people smarter than me. Well, my first question is that because I, I want to know why, like what was his what? Why might that be from uh, why is it that the mind has that capacity? I wonder, is it just a Luke, I don't know. I mean, we don't have to get into evolutionary biology here, but I'm yeah, so I, curious I don't know. as to, I got to read that paper, see what can, you know, if I'm, somebody offers an explanation. If you're really asking me to just completely <laughs> guess, I would probably say something along the lines of our species has probably gone through some fucking shitty times <laughs> right. as we've yeah. evolved and we're really just willing to latch onto anything that can give us that sense of pleasure. That is fascinating. That's yeah. really, really interesting. Mm. Mm. It is. All mm. right. I won't bore you guys anymore with that, but I will say that if you guys are interested in more of this uh, studies of porn and VR, there's a great book by Linda Williams that this article cites quite a bit, and the book is called Hardcore Power, Pleasure, and the Frenzy of the Visible. And some from the quotes that I can tell, it also seems to be a very readable book. So check that one out along with the other one from the Blaskovich guy. Anyway, guys, we're going to go into the mailbag. If you want to send us an email, hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co or send us a voicemail at 213-534-8807 or 21-elf-gut or elf-hut-07. All right. We got a couple voicemails today. This one is, let's go with Jack on John Wick 3, which I just saw again over the weekend. Hey, this is Jack McBrayer from the Bay Area. I was just listening to your John Wick 3 podcast. I love what you guys do. And when you guys were pondering on why John Wick cut off his ring finger, the first thing I thought it was a reference to the Assassin's Creed franchise, because Altair uh, had to cut off his finger to use the Hidden Blade, and then Ezio changed that later. And that was just a surface level reading. But the secondary reading was that um, by severing his ring finger, he's severing a tie to his wife. But by severing that tie, he's actually allowed to live and then remember her. And so it's the disconnect of what matters more, the symbol or the true meaning of what you're doing. Uh, thanks, and I love what you guys do. Keep doing it. Thanks, Jack. So I did just see it over the weekend, and this did cross my mind. And here's, and I, and I think your sec, as far as the hmm. first reading, if he gets a hidden blade in John Wick 4, I'll be pretty happy. Uh, <laughs> As far as the second reading, I think that you're mostly right. And here's what I kind of forgot when we did the podcast earlier. But basically, so once that happens, what the elder tells him is basically, all right, I will let you live, but you have to become an assassin for the rest of your life. There's no more getting out for you. If I let you live, you have to be an assassin for good. And so then he cuts off his finger as if to say, I'm no longer the loving husband, and now I am an assassin again, and I am giving you my fealty. But the interesting thing that I didn't really pick up on last time is this whole last act and his uh, his interaction with the with the Iron Chef America guy. The Iron Chef America guy says, you and me are the same. We're both masters of death. And Keanu Reeves is saying no. And I guess what that's meant to be is that Keanu Reeves is rebelling against the elder. So so now the elder is going to be after him, too, because Keanu Reeves is saying, no, I'm not like you. I'm not going to be a master of death for the for the rest of my life because I want to. As he tells Winston, I want to be live as a man and remember 
my wife rather than die as Baba Yaga. So, did you see John Wick 3, Austin? No, I still haven't seen it. Uh, man. I haven't either, but man, I what are you guys to. doing? I with don't your life? know. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> I know. Amazing. I've seen all the billboards, yeah. and I even talked with my dad about it the other day, who said that uh, it was amazing. And he's not usually, you know, the the film kind of guy, but he loves these shoot 'em up, badass kind of dude things. And he's a gun guy, so he's just marvelled at how amazing Keanu Reeves is with handling his gun. But that's my extent <laughs> of knowledge about John Wick two and or John Wick three. Yeah. Austin, what do you think about this whole Keanu Reeves obsession the internet has? I mean, I get it. I, I totally get it because uh, he is just kind of an interesting dude, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he he doesn't seem to fit within some of the, the boxes that we're accustomed to. And I think people crave authenticity and he seems to be a pretty authentic dude. Like we just found out that he's been donating like millions and millions of dollars secretly to cancer charities anonymously for years, you know? And so it's like stuff like that. He owns all these like motor, these like motorcycle companies. He gives away Harleys to guys on set of the matrix. It's like, he just seems to have something about him that is maybe excessive of his character. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's because everyone expects him to be just like a simpleton because of the kind of bro Ted type of cadence in his speech. But that there's like a depth and an authenticity to him that kind of exceeds all of it. And so people are fascinated and drawn to that. They gravitate to that stuff, you know? Yeah. He's a he's a wonderful man. All <laughs> right. So we've got some on eighth grade, her and audition. Have you guys which ones have you guys seen? I know Austin has seen her uh eighth grade. I've seen eighth grade and I've seen her. All right. And have I seen audition? Let's Wait, do the that. The Japanese then. horror movie? The Japanese okay, yeah, horror movie. I've seen that one too, but let's oh. go with whichever one you want to go with. It's been a while since I've seen audition. Okay, let's so, go yeah. with her. You've seen her, right, Austin? Yes. Okay. This is from Jacob. Hey, this is uh Jacob calling from Tennessee for the Show Me Mini Podcast. And I just wanted to say that I just listened to your Herd podcast the other day, and I have to say I found it a little problematic, yes, haha, problematic, uh, <laughs> that you guys referred to the relationship that, um, I forgot his name, the main character had with the AI, the OS, the OS the, as like a fake relationship. I felt, I don't know why, it just felt a little problematic to me, and... I want to know why you guys think it wasn't a real relationship when it had all the qualities, in my opinion, of a real relationship. And you can't even say it didn't have, like, human flaws or whatever you're, like, I believe you guys pointed out, because the AI does have flaws. I mean, she mentions that she basically had 600-something affairs going on at once. But anyways, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Anyways, talk to you later. All right. Thanks for calling in, Jacob. I think that that is what makes the movie interesting to me is that we are kind of suspended in this question of whether or not it is a real relationship. And I don't know, like, I do think it does. It is relevant that one being of a particular conscious or has certain limitations of their consciousness. Can they have an authentic romantic relationship with a being that has exponentially times more of a vast consciousness? I don't know. I, I just don't know. I, I can't really say whether it is or not. And But I'm also, throughout the movie, I'm always asking, like, are we supposed to be condemning him as being childish at the end when he writes that letter to his wife? Are we supposed to think that he is now in favor of more authentic relationships rather than these simulated fake letters that he writes? I don't know. What did you guys take away from that movie? Were we supposed to actually think that him and Samantha 
were good until they weren't? Or was it just was it just that these kind of relationships with an operating system could never work? Which is it? I don't know. Mm. Well, Austin, uh, go go first on this because I, I, I think I take the idea of what a relationship is. I'm pretty liberal about what that can be. So I'm curious to hear somebody. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this, Austin? I mean, so clearly we're, we're talking about limitations, right? So the question is, is what are the limitations that make this a quote unquote fake relationship for you, Jared? You know, and so maybe it has to do with because we know that it's programmed by an algorithm or something like that. So what would it mean to have an AI that isn't limited? What would it mean to have some sort of machine learning that would uh, go beyond those barriers for you? Wait, I'm sorry. You're suggesting that I have a that I solidly think that it's not a real relationship. That I don't know. I Oh, you you don't no no, but I mean, but you said it was fake before. So I'm wondering what was somebody the impulse yeah, that made you think it was oh, fake? Or I, somebody I, said I was, it was fake. positing that there is a reading of the movie in which we are supposed to believe that it is fake. Okay. I mean, ultimately he doesn't stay with her. He doesn't break up with her for a different operating system. He doesn't necessarily break up break up with her for another human being either. Well, no, but she she leaves. That's why the relationship ends, isn't it? Maybe I haven't seen it in. She leaves. She yeah, leaves. she leaves. But I don't. Th- but I think. I don't. It depends on how you're supposed to interpret him writing a letter to his wife, his ex-wife, saying that, "Hey, there's no easy answer to our relationship, but I just hope that we can be friends." Hmm. I suppose I didn't think of that part as having implications for like as defining his relationship with some as being you know the. That being the point where we are supposed to say, oh, because he does this, you know, writes this letter to his wife, that means that he feels this way about his relationship with Samantha. And if anything, I feel like perhaps his relationship with Samantha enriched in a way, you know, changed his perspective so that he was able to have this friendship with his wife. Perhaps it it broadened yeah. not only. Oh, I, I think that's definitely valid. Yeah. But I, I mean... think that if you were to say that this like, is the entire world of her, is it a utopia is it a dystopia is it somewhere in the middle i think the fact that it you can argue both ways is what makes it a great film for sure but if you are to say that the world of her and i read this somewhere i don't think this is this is not my original thinking but the world of her presents a world in which algorithms have made everything so convenient even relationships then why would anybody want the real thing mm-hmm. i remember you mentioning that like so, so, so Byung, I've talked about him before on the podcast, but Byung Chul Han writes a lot about what he calls uh, the world of pure positivity in the contemporary state of capitalism, and it's where you don't encounter you don't encounter difference, you don't encounter the other, but what you get are the, just these reproductions of the same, and the algorithm is a reproduction of the same. It actually forecloses possibility because it just uses what's called Gaussian distribution, which is basically you know the you kind of accumulate as much data from the data generating processes you can and you plug them into linear algebra and then you get predictive outcomes, right? And um, the problem with that is that you're always just sampling from pre-existent social phenomena that have been evaluated within those pre-formed paradigms, which is a limitation. But in a relationship, what makes a relationship something exciting and transcendent and sublime is that it's terrifying and that it's uncertain and that it's the encounter with the other. Unless you just are in love with, you know, kind of projected elements of yourself, which is also an element. There is an element of and, – and I don't mean this in like a judgmental sense, um, but there's a narcissism and sometimes in your relationships. You want someone who likes the things that you like because then you can respond over that. But it's not saying that that stuff is bad. It's saying but what happens when you have a world that's only 
that. And the world, the world of the algorithm is only that. And there's no longer that eros that I was talking about earlier. There's no longer the dart from the cupid because that has to come from the other. And so I think that this is problematic politically because let's take this with regards to like trans rights or gay rights. You can say, okay, sure, you can be uh, who you are, but only if you succumb to our existing societal framework. Well, that's not really allowing the other to be other. That's allowing the other to come into the pre-existent framework. So that's the problem with the world of the algorithm. The relationship that is just purely algorithmic doesn't allow for the true transcendence of the otherness, other, uh, of the other to like break into that pre-existent paradigm. And so this is what people work through when they're trying to develop future AI and machine learning technologies is how can you allow that thing to be autonomous so that there is a sense of otherness that actually characterizes the relationships between these various algorithmic or even like human conscious experiences? And are we just algorithms as well? And so those are the tensions that we're trying to explore. And I would say that that a truly kind of powerful encounter with thought or with uh, a partner in any sort of setting has to have some element of otherness to it. And then we have to, and then when we're changed by that otherness, that's when you really find something that's kind of transformative or transcendent or impactful. Not that it's always other, because then it's just fucking chaos, but not that it's just always the same either. And it's, it's that contradiction and that set of tensions that I think is really interesting. Yeah. To Jacob's point, I think the movie is quite clever in that uh, Scarlett Johansson, or whatever the name of the operating system is, does and does exhibit her own individual qualities of other. So I think that you right. could do that. Basically, Jacob, my argument is that the movie's a Rorschach test, and I think that it it invites the thought that maybe this is not a real grown up relationship, but it does not go down on that side. So I think it's kind of one of those things where you watch the movie and you kind of come to your own conclusions, which I think is a really hard thing to do as a filmmaker. And I think Spike Jones nailed it. All right, let's do one more voicemail. Let's go with eighth grade. This one is from Stephanie. Hey, this is Stephanie. Love, show me the meaning. Uh, just listen to your episode about eighth grade. And I think one thing that's so great about it is that it avoids a lot of the cliche, annoying things. And that got me thinking um, and wondering what some of your least favorite cliches in movies are. Um, two for me are really clunky exposition like in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where Bill Hader says, you're not even my step-brother anymore, you're my step-stranger, um, just to establish that relationship. Pretty awkward. And also, when uh, this happens a lot in movies, like happened in Castaway, happened in The Aviator, when people are sitting at a dinner table and everyone's talking over each other. I've never, ever experienced that in my life. I don't think it happens, but it happens almost every dinner scene in a movie. Um, anyway, keep up the great work. Love the podcast. Thanks. That is a great question, Stephanie. I'll go first if you guys need some time to think. So one, one yeah, thing go. I'll say about the clunky exposition, I totally agree with this. I hate when people yes. are saying, I'll sign yeah, off on if, that. if a man is talking to a woman and he says, have you talked to mom recently? It's like, oh, I see what you're doing. I actually recently replayed, this is actually a video game, The Last of Us, which is a masterpiece. And I was actually really impressed by some of the ways that they did exposition. There was one particular moment where there's a character, I can't remember his name, but uh, he he walks into a room and, he, and, and we see this man being hung. And the only indication that we get that they were romantically involved is uh, the guy, the other character says, who's that? And he says... Uh, he was my partner, and then he cuts down the rope where the guy's hung, and he's the only idiot who would wear a shirt like that. You know, I, I felt like 
it was just enough mm. to hint at the fact that they have some intimacy to their relationship, but it's not so overt as to, under, you know, they're not holding our hands through the fact that they were romantically involved. But I would say one of my other pet peeves, uh, and, and I brought this up in the Her podcast, but I'm getting really sick and tired of when people flash back to these uh, montages of like ideal relationships of people in a really backlit, sunny environment and they're smiling and kissing. And this is like how they remember <laughs> their relationship as being the most perfect, idyllic time. And that's supposed to, I guess, also function as exposition because now we are seeing inside the character's head, we're experiencing their grief at what they lost. And I don't know. I just feel like, dude, no relationship is – I mean, maybe it's just their warped memories, but no relationship is ever like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never that amazing and sunny and people holding hands, through, walking through fields of flowers and rolling around and playing kissy games. Like, come on. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. What about you guys? I mean, I'm not – oh, go well, I'm not going to have a terribly original thought on this. I'm going to go quickly because, because frankly, clunky exposition is also my biggest pet peeve. It's and a good one. it's just, it's true. You know, yeah. that to me is like a hallmark of bad writing. You know, when you have to do something so that it just, you know, is explained, you know, there's that kind of line that you, you pointed out, you know, just where you're having to, if you need a line to explain what the character is or some kind of idea that it cannot be conveyed through the action, that to me is frustrating. And I'm like, oh, God, there's so many other ways that you could have executed that that would have been, you know, just made the story more interesting to watch and to experience. And yeah. so, yeah, that's huge, huge for me. Can't can't stand it. So go ahead, Austin. Yeah. I mean, I sign off on the exposition thing. This is just more things that uh, I think filmmakers could do better with. One, when they're driving in a car and it's freezing outside, but they have the windows rolled down because they're worried about the reflection. But you know that the only reason that the windows are down have nothing to do with the plot, but it's because the DP is worried about reflection. You, you like, know, come on, you know guys. that. I think that's 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 a filmmaker's gripe, but go on. That is so fucking annoying to me. Um, and then another one, and this is kind of just a little bit different, but when characters smoke because they're just trying to be moody, but the actor clearly has never smoked in their life. It happens all the fucking time. Like they don't inhale. They just puff it and they breathe it out. I'm like, dude, you got to fucking – you got to stop this. Either change the characters. Like if you're trying to like make this character edgy and they smoke or something like which is also a stupid trope just to give them a cigarette, then fucking make sure they know how to smoke. Yeah. Like give them some of that like – that just like the, the the flavored tobacco that doesn't you know make them cough or something like that like Jesus man, um, and then I think the biggest thing is that the way they handle flashbacks like usually it's flashbacks are from like a third person perspective they like see themselves in the scene a lot of times it's like that's never how a flash like that's never how a memory is right that it's never like some objective thing it's always some weird distorted like put them in the first person make them confused or if they are in the third person and they are seeing themselves like acknowledge that it's some weird distortion of the actual memory but it's always like you know in the crime dramas you get this on all the tv shows it's like this perfect remembrance of what happened that you get from some objective observer those things annoy mm -hmm. me i mean there there are dozens there yeah. are dozens of them but those All are right. just i, I have ones. to add one because you made me think of one and and when you brought up the smoking thing i all i also hate when there are drugs or alcohol involved and the people don't act like they're fucked up like the one that the one that yes. kills me is in raiders of the lost ark when the op you know what i'm talking about the opening scene where the woman character i can't remember her name she's going shot per shot with some russian guy 
do downing yes. vodka, and you would assume they're at least on shot ten because the Russian guy just literally keeled over, and then she <laughs> just gets up like she's fine. Now I will say somebody right. recently told me that there was a shot that they ended up taking out that suggests that she was like uh, secretly throwing out it or replacing it with water or something like that, and then they just took uh... that out. I don't know if that's true, but even if it is. Fuck that, you know? <laughs> and and yeah. that happens constantly yeah. where they're, they're willing to make a drug joke or an alcohol joke, but then they just have to sweep it under because they need to forward the plot. And yeah. it doesn't help what they're trying to accomplish if they actually act like they're drunk and or high and or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. I mean, there is a there is a cookie cutter structure that – that you follow a lot of times, especially in like television when it's like real quick and real fast and you kind of have to do things in a certain way and scripts are being churned out sometimes super quickly, especially certain types of television. Um, so you run into these kinds of tropes all the time and I, when you when you latch onto them, it's really hard to n- unsee them and it can be really distracting sometimes. You know, and it can be everything from like the way that they're formally shot or like you guys are saying, like the way that exposition is handled or the way characters are constructed, the way that relationship, the way that sex scenes happen. Like, right. That's the cliche. It's like, no, sex scenes are sometimes weird. Sometimes you fall off the bed. Sometimes, you know, the the act is interrupted. Sometimes the phone rings. Sometimes the dog jumps in the bed like weird shit happens. And most of the time they're like overly stylized and romanticized. And, and sometimes that's great and it can be a turn on. But. It's kind of also silly, you know. Man, I feel like we should do a whole podcast about this. I actually think we should too because, you know, I'm thinking of other stuff too and and, like just the way that bisexuality is handled and I totally agree with you on the, you know, the just sex being – just the way that we we see – you know, nobody's ever asking about STDs. You know what I mean? Like it's just like – so it's just like (laughs) – like it's it's just like – how come nobody ever uses condoms? Right? Like there's just so many things that we skip over that could have ramifications that maybe people deal with after the movie ends and it's just like, you know, this is – this is yeah. No wonder sex education isn't better in America. Like yeah, movies Christ, have completely like, like <laughs> confused me to thinking that you can just be out spontaneously and meet someone and just have sex with them anywhere without <laughs> protection because that's just what happens. But no, normally it's kind of like, do you have a condom? And it's like, fuck, I don't. And then you have yeah. to like find one and you have to right. borrow one. And thankfully, <laughs> elsewhere than in Southern California, like at least in the UK and Australia, like all the bathrooms have mm-hmm. dispensers, so you can get condoms. But right. man. At least in my experience, and all the bars in LA, they need to step up their game, dude. Get freaking yeah. <laughs> condom <laughs> dispensers. On, Give them out some, for some free. Them, something. Oh man. yeah, come I mean, on. I, there are some that give them out for free, but yeah. Anyway, right. we're going long. We're going to do only one email. So once again, uh, thank you to everyone who's calling in with the voicemails. If you want to do so, it's two one three five three four eight eight zero seven, or send us an email at movies at wisecrack.co. We're going to just do one from the mailbag. This one's from Katya. Katya says, I have an interesting story. Oh, this is about her. I have an interesting story you'd probably want to know about. I'm a filmmaker and a writer, and every now and then I do a quick freelance job on the side. A few months ago, I actually got hired to write a bunch of love letters for a desperate client whose marriage was falling apart. So in other words, he thought that a complete stranger would be able to convince his wife that he still loves her. The funny part Mm. is, whenever I told people I was doing this at the time, they were either horrified or morbidly fascinated. I, on the other hand, didn't give a fuck, did not think too much about it. Uh, I think love letters can no longer function in this weird postmodern Tinder slash Black Mirror society as a legitimate expression of love. Or maybe I'm just too cynical. Maybe that's why all my exes hate me. Uh, (laughs) The client was satisfied with my works and no harm done. Did the marriage survive? 
don't know, don't care. <laughs> oh my god! I guess That's people. Amazing. I guess people were a bit uncomfortable by this because we perceive love as a private and intimate matter, and I mm. inevitably intruded this sacred bond. However, I pretend to love other people all the time when I write, create characters. So writing those letters wasn't really a big deal from my perspective. The future is now. P.S. Where's Ryan? Ryan was on our last podcast, so if you haven't seen Audition, definitely watch it. But um, I don't know if you guys remember, but in her, his job is to oh, yeah. write fake love letters. Right. So that's right. pretty hilarious. Yeah. No, which I actually thought, you know, your interpretation of that as being, you know, a job where it's like, oh, you know, that's going to be automated. I actually thought that <laughs> is a job at, in that at, in that particular type of society that would be at a premium Right, because there's somebody who can like a real human wrote this. Whoa, let's get a real person to write these kinds of things. You know, where everything else has been made efficient. So yeah. Just saying, I thought it was like you know, I, I don't know. You can't like she had to do this for for this 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 but marriage. The, and... But the service, it's it's not supposed to be that you know that some other human did this. No, it's supposed to be. Oh, if that's so, right. It's yeah. supposed to be that they thought. But well, anyway, that, that's yeah, a whole interesting thing to brainstorm about. Is like what would be the things that people would pay extra for to know that a human being has. Made? I think about this all the time, and I do think letter writing is one of them. I really do. I mean, really? there are services now that you can get. I actually handwrite letters sometimes because. For people, they'll pay me to handwrite letters, though, and they write the wait, copy. Wait. People hand pay you to handwrite letters. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I have a what kind of what kind of letters? Um, baby showers. Uh, I haven't done wedding invitations. I've done baby showers, thank you cards. Is it because kind of, of the way that you write? Like you can do I have calligraphy good or something? I don't do calligraphy. That's I amazing. just have pretty decent handwriting, which weirdly my mom does too. It's kind of bizarre, but like, yeah, we have, I have good handwriting, and so people, I'll send them samples, and they'll be like, oh yeah, well you do like, you know, 200 baby shower, you know, thank you cards, things like that, and then I'll do them. So, so here's but, the interesting yeah. thing. Some people would say that well, all you're doing is transcribing like literal word for word. In that case, I, would say, I am. Oh, you don't think? Go ahead, go ahead. Continue. No, I would say there's actually, there's something really unique that you're contributing, that you're adding, oh. and that is the style, you know, the flourish, um, the aesthetic and all of those things are translated. So when the card is received, you're actually adding some value, let's say, to the process. It's not just simply like uh, a replication, but you're mm -hmm. actually contributing something novel. I think there's actually something really interesting in that, you know? And yeah. I mean, that's what you're getting paid for. You're not just getting paid because it's like, oh, I'm lazy and this person can write, you know? But it's actually what they're also paying for is the beauty that you are infusing into these words that are just kind of typed to you, right? They and I, well, they do get their money's worth when it comes to that because, like, when I do it, you know, I'm really thinking, like, I take the text and I read it and then I really try to, I'm, I'm really trying to feel what they're trying to convey when I'm writing. And it's just mm. a bizarre thing. It, uh, frankly, it came out, started that way out of boredom because I'm like, how do I make this mundane <laughs> process more interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, let's think of it as like an acting exercise, you know? It's like trying to really feel like, oh, you know, John, it was so great when you came to our barbecue and you just left us with this amazing present that little Sally's going to treasure for the rest of her life. And it's like, okay, <laughs> how do I make that feeling come through in the text? So, but yeah. yeah. But how would you, how would you feel if in reality, uh, John just slept with so and so's okay, wife, just... you know what I'm saying, and and, and this is actually a passive aggressive message, dude. Yeah. Maybe I can like you write in block letters, that. not in round <laughs> letters. Yeah, exactly, all caps, Fuck all caps. Yeah, you should get yeah. meta like that. It's like yeah. you know, I decided to write one this one like this because I figured that the writer was actually being passive aggressive. Dude, I yeah. love it. I'm totally gonna do that next time. We'll see what that comes out with. Maybe we'll never get hired again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say one other thing that's interesting too is. Like when we listen to pop songs, aren't pop songs universal love letters that we somehow give to our partners? Like we sing to them 
the song? Aren't we doing something similar? We're reproducing somebody else's lyrics and affect, but when we're singing, you know, boys to men or whatever yeah. the fuck it is to somebody, even if you're kind of yeah, doing it playfully or whatever, you know? <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. I think that's very apt. That's true. Yeah. Or even just words that we say. When we say something that we heard somebody else say or a gesture that we saw somebody else perform, we're kind of doing something similar. You know, we're we're taking somebody else's love letter, so to speak. So maybe there's a sense in which there's mimesis here. There's reproduction here. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, it is really cool. All right, guys, I'm going to cut us off because we're going long. But where can we yep. find you guys on the Internet? Helen. Instagram at F-L-O-E-R-S-H. Cool. And Austin. Yeah, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, uh, Insta, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y, and you can find my philosophy podcast that I run with my homie Troy. Uh, it's called Owls at Dawn, you know, uh, iTunes, oh. Apple Pod, or I guess iTunes is dead, Apple Podcasts, uh, <laughs> Spotify, all the regular places. Cool. Awesome. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Until next time, peace. Bye. Later.